is Me, Myself and Disaster, the show all about disasters with a human focus. From hurricanes to humanitarian issues, we journey across fault lines to explore trends in disaster preparedness, response and recovery. Over to you, Josh and Andrew. Hello and welcome back to Me, Myself and Disaster, the show where we talk all things disaster with a human focus. Have you ever been in a situation or even an organisation where you think, man, this place is going under? Well, is it the people that are around you? Is it the leadership or is it just the organisation? We're talking all things leadership here on Me, Myself and Disaster. More specifically, what does leadership look like in disasters and emergency management? What does leadership look like for the future? And how do we as organisations ensure that we're developing leaders to tackle the disasters of tomorrow? Andrew, who do we have on the show today to help us unpack this conversation? Josh, today we're joined by Dr. Daria Kraut, a leadership scientist and expert in building high-performing leaders. Daria completed a PhD in organisational leadership from the University of Western Australia and has two master's degrees from Maastricht University in the Netherlands. She's a lecturer in leadership and work psychology and is a founder and lead scientist of The Leading Lab, a boutique consultancy that uses research-based strategies to help develop leaders. We'll be asking Daria about the importance of leadership in emergency management, how we can develop and measure culture and how we can better lead emergency management volunteers. Let's climb this leadership ladder together with Dr. Daria Kraut here on Me, Myself and Disaster. Daria, it's great to have you with us today. Welcome to the show. Great to be here. Thank you. So we spoke recently with Blythe McLennan all around the future of volunteering. and We realised how important as part of that uh, our volunteers are to emergency preparedness, response and recovery. And key to that is leadership. So my first question today is why is leadership in emergency management so important? Well, I think, you know, as a leadership scientist, I would argue leadership is important everywhere. But if you think particularly around the emergency management context, you know, it's almost like we, we really depend on leaders in those high pressure situations, like, right, we look up to leaders to make sense of that situation and really solve it or make something that, that goes towards the solution. So leadership, emergency management is probably, you know, the best training ground or the best the best place where we can observe the true leadership and the true outcomes of good good or not so good leadership. And I think it's true in terms of when you're working with volunteers, if you kind of can work with people from all different backgrounds and volunteers from everywhere, you can kind of work with anyone, I think. What do you what do you reckon? Oh, absolutely. And I think with volunteers, what we often forget, you know, implicit to a lot of conversations we have on leadership is this idea that leaders in the workplace are always in charge of people who rely on them for payment, right? So there's this implicit workplace dynamic, which is I am here because I'm being paid. And part of it is kind of comes like respect. I respect you as a leader or a boss or whatever it might be, because there's that implicit assumption that it's a paid, paid or money is involved in that exchange. Whereas with volunteers, then it's none of that, mm. right? So volunteers are there purely for reasons of serving the community, for, you know, serving their, maybe some, some of their desires or, or their goals. But ultimately, there's no monetary reward for the work that they're doing. So suddenly, leaders are left without, the, you know, the very significant lever that they usually have in their toolbox. And, and suddenly, they have to rely on a host of other things 
which in the workplace potentially they they should, but they often don't because they have that money uh, as you know as a, as a motivator there. And I think it's really interesting because Andrew and I were actually having that exact conversation this morning between ourselves around yeah, like what levers do you actually have yep. uh, in the volunteer space versus uh, you know paid employment and how you know when we move into that volunteer sphere, it actually becomes quite complex and some of those motivators that we can draw upon um, you know are, are very different. And, and it kind of takes a nuanced style of leadership to understand how you kind of work in that realm and in that world rather than, yeah, as you said, Daria, you know, well, I make you pay your paycheck, so you have to sit down and do what I say. Yeah. Um, but in terms of looking more broadly, you know, we've just touched on a challenge here around obviously motivators and, and how we kind of draw, um, you know, draw respect or draw or draw kind of um, alignment out of individuals in the volunteer se- sector. But for you and your research, what do you think are some of those kind of top key challenges in this leadership space in EM in the volunteer sphere? And I guess what are some of those strategies that you're starting to see that helps people overcome those challenges? So if, if we think about the challenges, I see you absolutely nailed it. And, uh, and it's, well, for everyone at the moment, it is retention, right? So if you look mm-hmm. at any industry, in, anywhere, everyone is crying out for people and saying, well, people are living at an astonishing rate. Uh, it's, uh, I think the ABS uh, recent statistics was one in 10 have changed job mm-hmm. in the last 12 months, which is unprecedentedly high, right? And in the volunteering space, that number is probably what, like three, four, we don't even know, but I would suspect it's three, four times higher. Um, so, so the retention is, is, is ultimate, you know, the, the challenge, but it has always been a challenge for yep. the emergency management. It's never, it's never not been a challenge. So how do I lead in a way that is actually engaging people, uh, and, and continue, continues to engage people around that large, uh, purpose, right? So all of the emergency management volunteering is Lots, you know, lots of people are there because they want to serve their community. In our research, we found that predominantly it's 70, 80% of people will say, I'm here because I want to be part of my community and I want to help my community. And unfortunately, again, in our research, what we have also seen is that leaders maybe understand it, but don't really do much to continue to reinforce that yeah. community connection, right? They kind of get into these, you know, bossy boots, <laughs> you know, so well, for some reason, somehow I ended up being a unit, unit leader or manager or whatever you call them, right? Yep. And now I'm going to boss everyone around. And so people, you know, the volunteers go like, well, why would I be here then? Especially yep. since there are so many different avenues for being a volunteer. Like you can go and volunteer somewhere else, right? You don't need to, um, you don't need to, you know, stick up for, for behavior that you, you're not going to tolerate or do, you don't want to tolerate. So I think ultimately it boils down to, you know, how do I retain people? How do I motivate and engage people that it's not just, you know, um, a, a, a bunch of volunteers that, you know, maybe come together every week, but there's not that connection, you know, there's not that feel, which ultimately you really need when you're going out and addressing emergencies, right? Because that's the ultimate test of those connections and relationships, right? Um, and how do I um, ensure that it's a long-term, um, it's a long-term relationship as well? Because 
ultimately that training, you know, it's in the emergency management, you have one of the most extensive training requirements mm. in the volunteering um, profession. And you spend 12 months training someone to be fully ready to, you know, to go out and, and, and address emergencies. And then you lose them and you start all over again. Yeah. Right? So, um, you know, I think the um, strategies you asked about strategies, Josh, and I've covered on some of them, but, you know, thinking about the purpose, the community, but also about autonomy, ultimately, right? How do I let people uh, decide on some of the things that they're doing as part of their role. And I just want to hone in because I think you made a really good point and where I think you're going, I think you said, um, you know, in terms of leadership and creating a vibe, I think something that Andrew and I have really seen through our years operating across volunteer emergency services is really that um, culture is set by leadership and good culture is set by good leadership. And if you don't have the absence of that good leadership, it's often that I think what's the saying is that, you know, the, the fish starts to rot from the head yep. is that if you, you know, if you don't have that good leadership, you cannot build good unit culture. Can you, can you kind of unpack that idea for us, that link between leadership and building culture and building an environment where people, people ultimately want to be and spend their time? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's, it's really funny because when you talk about good leadership and over the years, you know, there's really uh, become one of those big puzzles for me because um, I research leadership is everyone kind of, we all know what good leadership is, but no one can really explain it, right? Yep. <laughs> but we all know what it means, but it's sort yep. of very implicit. So absolutely, yep. I think leadership and culture, like the overlap is, you know, 70, 80%, right? So what leaders do not what they say, but what they do. <laughs> and, yep. and, and that's your culture, right? So it's a huge, huge impact on, on the culture. So the good leadership really encompasses, you know, those three main things, which, uh, which, is, which is based on, you know, psychology. We have a theory of self-determination. And we kind of looked at how that plays out in leadership, particularly in the volunteering context in some of our research. So it's the ABC Right, it's autonomy, which I've mentioned earlier. So it's giving people choice over things and over some things that they can choose how they want to approach and do them. Right. So in emergency management, usually I get the response something along the lines: "Yes, but we have standard operating procedures, and there's no autonomy. We can't do whatever we want." You know, what are you talking mm. about? Well, I, you know, my response to that is: Yes, that is true, but there's also a lot of other areas that are not necessarily covered by standard operating procedures. So you don't need to just, you know, stick to, you know, the rule books. You can, there are areas where volunteers can actually decide, you know, how they want to do tasks and what they, what they want to do about them. So that's number one, autonomy. The B is for belonging. So again, how do I cr build, create that community and that culture? And that, again, starts with the leader. The way that I develop my relationships with the volunteers in my unit or with my subordinates in the workplace doesn't really matter, is going to give people a, a sense of belonging, sense of you know being part of this larger group. And then so A, B, and C is C is for co competence. We all want to feel like we are good at something, right? That we are competent mm. at something. And so as a leader, giving volunteers an ability or an opportunity to demonstrate that competence and feeling like, yes, I'm actually here because I have the skills or the competencies that 
you know, I need and I can contribute to to this unit, right? And finding finding the way to engage, you know, different volunteers with different levels, different varying skill sets, and making sure that everyone has an opportunity to to demonstrate those those competencies. So I think those once those three elements are kind of covered in the way that leaders behave in the way they go about mm. running their unit, you you get a really good solid foundation for that good leadership, good culture, and the vibe uh, that you said mentioned earlier. So I'll ask you a question. It's kind of a, a leading question because I know we talk like it's funny. People often can say, oh, like I'm going back to uni or I'm studying at TAFE or whatever. And I say, oh, what are you studying? Oh, I'm studying leadership. And I'm, I think like what they want to become a better leader. Like is that, is that an effective approach to go back to the book, study leadership and somehow come back this miraculous transformation and you're a great leader or like do you need to get experience? I don't quite understand like studying leadership at university or whatever, does that actually get you anywhere further up the, um, I guess, the leadership chain and, and becoming a better leader or is it is it – it's a waste of time. <laughs> it actually does. <laughs> and I don't, oh, okay. and I don't say <laughs> well, this. Well, I'll eat my words. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, look, I, and I don't say this just because I am at the university and I actually teach leadership. <laughs> <laughs> <So>, Oops. <yeah. laughs> no. um, Warning, plug incoming. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, but, and it's really funny because I was having this conversation with someone yesterday and they said, you know, sort of, Coming along the similar lines, like why are we wasting time, you know, on leadership development in organization? You know, why are we why are we not sorting out some other of more technical challenges first? And you get you know get and you hear this a lot, but but the thing is, like, leadership is not fluffy. Like I call myself a leadership mm. scientist for a good reason. We have science behind leadership, right? We have research, we have rigor, we know what works, we know what doesn't work. All of the stuff I've told you told you so far today around leadership is all based on the research, right? So from that point of view, you know, yes, you can go and study leadership because there's ultimately these fundamental principles in leadership, you know, science rigor based, that if you can learn them and understand them, and then absolutely you have to apply them. You can't just miraculously, you know, gain the knowledge and then be a better leader. You have to apply it. But at least, you know, if you have that foundation that is actually a rigorous foundation, it, it, is, um, it is higher chances that you are going to lead better. But application is absolutely is as important, right? So we talk about, you know, in training, we have this model, which is 70-20-10. Uh, it's been around for a really long time. On, uh, out of that 70-20-10, 10% is the knowledge acquisition, which is your studying, your reading, your, you know, the kind of the technical, just, you know, knowledge it's, as such. You then add to that 20%, which is actually around reflection, thinking about how it applies to you, thinking about how you would do it, how would you actually go about doing these things as a leader. And then 70% is the practice, right? 70% is going back to your role, to your workplace, to your unit, to your volunteering, whatever it is, and starting to enact those behaviors. So yes, you can learn leadership but you also have to practice it. One doesn't kind of go without the other, right? They, they, you need yeah, both. That makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> Back to uni, Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yes. And so a lot of volunteers in emergency management come from, I think we mentioned earlier, such diverse backgrounds. You've got people who are investment bankers and have like managing directors and they've got a lot of leadership experience. 
And then you've got people who haven't got that experience yeah. and they might work in sort of a different type of job where they don't manage people on a day-to-day basis and all of a sudden they're kind of thrown in, often because the previous leaders quit and there's no succession plan and they've got to step up and just take over the last person standing pretty much. So for those sort of people, those people who really want to uh, take that step to, to be a leader of a unit or a brigade, what's your advice to people who have no leadership experience in the past? How can they kind of learn that skill of managing people at, I guess, a, a quick rate to become a, a leader and change the culture to be a positive one? Yeah, great, great question. And I think, you know, I would boil it down to the really, really basics, right? Because, you know, you don't want to start doing like, big bold things when this is your first time maybe and you're terrified or you know feeling a bit apprehensive about the whole thing um so very very simple right so there's two key foundational leadership behaviors really it all boils down in the end of the day to two key behaviors they're called task oriented and relationship oriented pretty self-explanatory right So task-oriented behavior is where the leader is focused on the task, right? So what is the task? How are we going to accomplish it? It's more technical in sort of in its orientation. It's really about, you know, helping people to figure out, well, what the task is and how I want you or how can we all together tackle the task and get about solving it, right? So it's very, um, so it's managerial, you could say, in sort of in its approach. Relationship-oriented leadership style is more around relationship, building relationships with people, listening to people, understanding what people want, understanding what people's needs are, and so on and so forth, right? Um, So the trick is you need both. You need a good balance of both. And really, probably one of the hardest or one of the easiest sounding but the hardest uh, areas in terms of application of this as a leader is knowing which one to use when and, and, and in which context and with which person, right? So if you're a new leader, you know, don't make it too complicated. It's, you know, it's already hard enough. Just remember you need task focus and you need people focus or relationship focus. And then really thinking about, okay, where are the, you know, let's say, where are we now in, in, you know, in the context, in volunteering context, and what do I really need to do, be doing now as a leader? So very, very simply, in, in, as an example of this, if you are in, uh, you know, in a training session or on a social event in the unit and, you know, things are, are good, uh, you know, you should be focused on relationship building, right? You should be socializing. You should be talking to people and doing these sort of things. If you are on a fire ground and, you know, things are not going well or it's a real emergency, you probably want to be more focused on tasks. But even that is not like 100%, right? You still need the, the form of other but maybe to a lesser extent, yeah. I want to change the conversation and and kind of change the gear a little bit here. And it's something that has been playing on my mind since talking with Blythe around, you know, that looking at uh, volunteering from a a future focus or from a future lens. Mm. And I think one thing that we can all kind of attest to in this field is that, you know, there is a whole lot of change coming for us and change is inevitable in our roles in this field, you know, whether it's, you know, inquiries or royal commissions or how we do things or even the external environments changing around us in terms of the frequency of disasters, you know, compounding, cascading. So if we were to look at leadership in that context, you know, how how do leaders develop kind of 
resilient and adaptable cultures, flexible cultures. Because I think that's one thing that I've seen a, a lot of downfall for a lot of leaders in this space is that that inability to be flexible or go with the flow or kind of respond to the environment around them. And I think you were saying it before around, you know, well, we have an SOP and we've got to follow it. And it's like, well, yeah, but we work in emergencies and disasters when things go really, really wrong. And sometimes you have to think outside the box and adapt your approach. So yeah, I'm just wondering, you know, what does leadership look like in that space and how do you be a leader that's comfortable with change and kind of having, and again, it comes to autonomy, like having an environment where you empower people to make decisions and be flexible and resilient. Yeah, well, exactly. And I think, again, like, you know, you've just said it yourself, you know, it's, Developing adaptability, adaptability and resilience really requires leaders to throw out that traditional command and control leadership style. Yeah. So, you know, autonomy, right? This industry is so notoriously known for the command and control. Mm. And if we want to change anything and if we want to be better with, you know, if all of those things that are coming, you know, yeah. all of the challenges, it's getting away from that command and control as, as a first priority. And that starts mm. with giving other people autonomy. And, and that starts with realizing that the leader is not just the person who's occupying that hierarchical power position. Mm. Just because you're in a hierarchical power position doesn't mean that you, well, that you're a leader, doesn't mean that others around you are not, right? Yeah. So, so yeah. I think like getting rid of this notion where we're constantly in con con conflict, right? What is leadership? All mm. leadership is, is a power position and kind yeah. of detaching them and saying, well, actually one is one and the other is absolutely yeah. something else. And yes, there's an overlap, but it's not a hundred percent overlap. I think yeah. that's really the first step to that adaptability and resilience. And actually, you know, it, it's really interesting. You mentioned the kind of the really extreme context, right? Mm. So not just a fire or not just a yeah. natural disaster, but really like complete, like we have never seen anything like this before. Yeah. There's a really interesting study. It was a, a few years older now, but it's in, in the firefighting context. And it actually showed that in the really, really extreme context where the rule book doesn't apply anymore, because like there's, you know, there's no SOP for this because no one has ever had to even imagine this happening. Unprecedented. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was trying to avoid that word, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, this is when people really, they pushed outside of the box and what they actually found, they engaged in adaptable, truly adaptable, truly collaborative leadership in those mm. really extreme situations because they realized in that moment that we alone, one person or two people is not going to be able to deal with this. Yeah. We need everyone. We need everyone's brains. We need everyone's hands. We need everyone's hearts. Otherwise, we're all, you know, like it was a near, it was a near miss study. So it's yeah. like they were like pretty close to, to a miss, right? So, yeah. so that's, you know, that's where they found really that like a, you know, and it, and it shouldn't be that, like we should be, that leadership should be around all the time, not just where we're, you know, we're about to really drop off this hill and the things yeah. are really not going well. It's, it's interesting. There's a, like, I know, like part of my background was in safety. I know one of the big conversations in the safety space was around safety one and safety two thinking and like safety one is, you know, very, um, you know, SOP, very instructional. You provide someone instruction and you expect them to follow. Whereas safety two is really about, you know, how do we actually empower people to make 
the decision yeah. with the right resources and tools. It's, it's their responsibility as an autonomous human being to make that decision. Mm-hmm. We need to empower them to make the right decision. But, but it's really interesting, like this notion of um, – like how do we let go of some of that hierarchical kind of culture? Because it's so deeply ingrained with us. Like, do you have any tips? Because it's funny, like in the, in, in the, in the paid world, in the private world, you know, it's a very kind of accepted thought around, you know, at the end of the day, a great leader is someone who kind of understands their weaknesses and actually comes at it from a position of vulnerability and goes, well, what are my weaknesses and how do I build a team around me that almost mitigates those weaknesses? And then we as a collective are stronger than stronger as kind of one as a team. But I kind of get the sense, and I think you just touched on it, is, you know, you don't kind of get that sense in that hierarchical command and control. It's like, well, you've got the, you know, the epaulets on your shoulder. You must be the most experienced person here and you're expected to tell everyone what to do. Have you got any thoughts or have you seen anything in the field around great leaders who have been able to kind of shake that command and control culture off? Yeah, I actually have. And it's funny, you were saying, you know, you you were talking, I was remembering particular conversations I've had with uh, SES units here in WA, you know, down south, there's a particular one, which, and it, this was a few years ago now, but they, uh, the time when I got them, when I was doing research interviews, was exactly they were uh, transitioning, right? So the unit leader used to be a very old school command and control, you know, and the new person who was maybe six months in the role or, or you know, something was completely opposite to that. And so, like, we have, like, this whole, like, right, you know, uh, interview transcripts, research interviews, people talking about how great that transition was, and, you know, and, and how much has changed in a very short amount of time, right? So, so they kind of, you know, also didn't think that this will ever change because that has mm. been, like, a normal for them for such a long time, right? So we're talking 20, 30 years, so kind of the previous style of leadership was, like, really long and kind of ingrained. And then yeah. suddenly someone else comes in and you don't, it actually changes really quick. It doesn't yeah. have to be really long. I think, I think it just takes, you know, I guess, well, it takes those individuals to step up and, you know, have yeah. the courage to step up and for others to actually follow that. But I think, you know, it is changing because there is a lot of appetite for that. And like mm-hmm. we started this conversation saying for volunteers who are community purpose driven, this is really becoming a non-negotiable. Yeah. They are not going to sit around and wait for the that, um, I don't want to say an old dude, but, you know, stereotypically uh, to finally get it. They're going to walk with their feet, you yeah. know, and they yeah. do already. So, uh, you know, so if, if, you know, if you're listening to this and you're saying, oh, I'm not sure about my leadership and, you know, like, or maybe, yes, this is exactly what, you know, the, you know, the kind of the issue we're facing right now. You don't have a lot of time and it can yeah. change really quickly. So that's the good news. And then I'm going to throw another curveball or like a really big curveball. Some of my colleagues in the leadership space have been doing some really interesting thinking lately and basically have proposed, you know, that AI at the moment already is capable of replacing leaders. Oh, interesting. Yes. I like that. <laughs> so if you're sitting there and listening to this, thinking, oh, I've been here for 20 years, you know, like whatever, you know, and I'm yeah. like, no one can come and replace me. Think again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So the question then about going back to university or just getting AI to do it for me, probably this AI is the answer. <laughs> <laughs> Always finding the easy way out, Matella. <laughs> 
<laughs> and so is that in terms of when you say AI, is that um, like yeah, unpack that a, a like, robot to manage like a an SCS unit or an RFS brigade or make okay. decisions like yeah. in a, in a way feed feed information in and, and pull a pull a decision out of AI. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So like yeah. anything, so think, you know, you know, from the very basic functions, like, you know, what ma- kind of managerial functions or like, you know, if you think unit managers, like the very basic stuff, like, you know, scheduling or, you know, rostering or, you know, planning training or scheduling training or, you know, inventory or like whatever it might be, those kind of mm. like technical things, you know, absolutely there's already you know, systems that can manage all of that and automate, you know, the Amazon warehouses run on, uh, you know, algorithmic, algorithmic management since like 2018 or 17. So like that's five, six years now and they're doing brilliantly. They're even capable of, um, uh, they have the powers to fire people so they can actually algorithm right wow. computer decides you're you're now fired see you later bye-bye um so you know that you know but and that has Read been that for a, the podcast yeah yeah like Oops, look that and people don't realize that has been around for a long time now it's not this it's yeah. not 2023 but with what yeah. happened in 2023 now we're talking yeah okay that can be all done by machines but now with you know what we're experiencing is generated by ai we're now thinking, okay, we'll actually re- can replace that human sort of element to leadership, right? Can have a conversation with you. It can, you know, make much better decisions potentially. It can, because it is able to process, uh, you know, a lot more information in a much quicker and more efficient way. So, yes, it can be like a decision input or output sort of support, but it could also mm-hmm. make those decisions out- autonomously, right? It could probably, you know, think about, I don't know, like, you know, just imagination here, but what is the ideal mix of, you know, volunteers or given these volunteers I have in my unit or brigade, what is the kind of the most efficient way to allocate roles and resources among these people and, and, and keep them motivated? You know, you could feed him in saying, Andrew really likes this, this, and this, and is motivated by, you know, whatever. And Josh here is, you know, whatever, however old male with these interests and these motivations. Mm. And then there's another 15 people and it will spit out saying, okay, well, in order to mat- motivate Andrew, we need to offer him, you know, recognition, printed certificates, you know, pat on the back. <laughs> you, you know, I'm just creating this stuff. <laughs> But, 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 but theoretically and practically, it, it's possible. It, it's already yeah. possible. So you, you could build a system that takes over most of, most of that stuff. And I find it interesting too because um, a lot of the things that I see around volunteers is there's issues in terms of if there's poor culture, it comes from the leader, but often the leader is emotionally charged, there's a lot going on, there's been a major bushfire and everyone's stressed and you go, well, an AI wouldn't get stressed by a bushfire, it would just keep playing away yeah um so there's probably opportunities there for even if not fully replacing our people with with uh robots but certainly using that sort of ai to help make decisions potentially in the future augmenting yeah absolutely yeah the question here and i think you just touched on it because we've my mind's gone to this space now with the the keyword stereotypes yeah um you know we started the conversation about talking about culture and 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 what you know what the intersection with leadership and culture is but, you know, one of the other key legs of that stool uh, in terms of, of, you know, creating, again, that vibe or a space where people want to 
to come and be and spend their time. Because, I mean, at the end of the day, you're making a choice. Like, it's an opportunity cost. Do I go and spend two hours down at my unit or do I spend that with my family? And, like, for some people, that's, you know, a big decision to make and we want to motivate people to be there and make that decision. So diversity. So where where does this come into leadership? We, we know that diversity is a big conversation in our culture today. Um, we know some of the key principles behind diversity in terms of the more diverse our workforce, the stronger it can be. But, you know, what does that look like from a, from a leadership point of view in terms of how do you embrace diversity and, and use that in your leadership style? Yeah, no, it's a great question, Josh. I think, I think to me, you know, diversity has always been such an interesting thing to think about in terms of volunteering. Because when I think about, you know, the you know, the regional, smaller communities uh, that often have maybe not the new diversity, but more the old diversity, you know, you know, kind of the people who have been living there for a longer time and they really are a part of that community. I find a lot of the times that is actually like, they don't even think about, you know, excluding mm. someone or not, not that anyone kind of explicitly, but but they just don't have a choice, right? They have to have everyone in part of that, yeah. you know, emergency management volunteers group, whatever, right? Because it's it's yeah. a question of preparedness and survival for them, right? So, yeah. so in some ways, you know, volunteering and particularly emergency management volunteering can be such a great kind of vehicle for encouraging diversity and bringing people together because the motivation behind it is so much bigger right it's bigger yeah. than just me or just you or just you know whatever it's it's all of us we're all in this together yeah. and by itself it kind of promotes this amazing um you know like inclusive approach you know but at the same time at the same time those same units can be the most exclusive you know um places that do not accept you know any anyone who doesn't you know looks look like them like stereotypically yeah. right and it always like it and i always look at that and i always think a lot about you know why that might be the case and i think as you've said it's it's the leadership right and it's yeah and it's the role modeling and it's the you know how how leaders go about embracing and really you know it goes it goes back to all the same points that we've already touched on. Promote the community feel, you know, be inclusive yourself, you know, think about belonging, who is feeling comfortable here, who is not feeling comfortable here in this unit. You know, mm. how how can you you know find the best in in each people, in each of those people and volunteers? How can you offer them opportunities to express themselves and and have autonomy? All of that, like there's no magic other recipes for inclusive leadership yeah. or diversity leadership. It's all the same stuff. Like we're all people in the end of the day, we're yeah. all human and we all want the same, well, like psychologically, you know, basic yeah. needs are all the same uh, among all of us. Doesn't matter backgrounds and all that sort of stuff. And I think like one thing that for, for me personally, that I've kind of learned through my journey of, you know, going to around to units across the state and across many different uh, jurisdictions as well is that I actually think one of like just being cognizant of it is one of the biggest things you can do because I know as well like I've as like you said like sometimes you walk into a unit and you just kind of go yeah I don't fit here um, mm. and it's not because there's been a conscious decision for that it's just that you know like-minded people you know tend to congregate and and if yeah. a leader isn't cognizant of that you can kind of find yourself down a pathway where you, you as you said, you can walk in and you go, whoa, 
wow, there is one type of person here and I can tell what that is. And I'm obviously not part of that, that click and, you know, very uncomfortable. First impressions are a big thing. We know that from a lot of research in volunteer in the volunteer yeah. space and you kind of walk out. So it's almost like one of the simplest things is just being aware of yeah. it, I, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I completely agree. I say, you know, thinking back of the units that, you know, I've been, you know, visited as part of the research and, you know, talking to people, that is absolutely um, the case is that, you know, everyone has to be made welcome, you know, and, mm. and, um, and, and that's why, you know, we know that, you know, the first meeting is crucial, you know, yeah. and the first months is crucial. Uh, you know, the longer you're there, the, the more likely you're going to be around, you know, so, you know, so it's really those first touch points and even, before the first meeting, you know, when you when you maybe go and have a look around or look at the, you know, the advert, you know, in your local supermarket or on a notice board in the community, right? What does that look like? Who are the people that are pictured on that? So, mm. you know, it starts really early on and and making sure that, yeah, everyone everyone is felt welcome. And, and like I said, I've seen examples where it worked absolutely beautifully. Um, and, you know, and that was not like... People didn't even think about that. Um, yeah. You know, who, who are, what do you mean? Like we are different backgrounds, you know, like we're all in this together. Uh, and yeah. and I've seen examples where it did not work at all. It was all mm. same, same, same. And yeah. So if we're looking at um, cultural organisation then, and I know we talked about leadership and, and what is good leadership, is there some way of kind of measuring what a good culture is? Like we take like a temperature check and go, oh, no, this organization's sick and it's bad and we need to kind of replace the leader. Is there some measure of what good culture is or can we describe good culture in some way? Uh, it is and it is not a culture survey. <laughs> <laughs> Many people's hearts just drop then. Yeah. <laughs> or an engagement survey. I'm really sorry. <laughs> but it's not. Uh, I mean, it used to, it's not. Uh, and, <laughs> and the reason for that is that, you know, someone took, a, or all of us took a beautiful tool and used it way too many times. And so now it doesn't work anymore. Um, but really, I mean, you know, if you're a lead, you know, if you're a leader or you, and that's another, uh, it, it, uh, sorry. If you're a leader and you really want to get a sense of, you know, your organization, you know, one of the best ways to do it is to have conversations with the people. Yeah. Stop, stop hiding behind the engagement survey. In fact, you know, I'll probably make an argument again, controversial, that, you know, if all you're doing in the culture space is engagement survey, that is the first red flag that, you know, there's probably not a good culture in that organization. Because the, the, you know, it's, 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 it's tick and flick, you know, it's, it's, we're going to do engagement survey. We're going to do, we look at the results. We're not going to do anything mm. about them. And then we're going to go and do another one in the, in the 12 months time. So, so, yeah. so if you, if you're a leader and you really, you know, start saying, okay, there's something, you know, maybe not happening here or something needs to change or, you know, there's some, some, some signs or, you know, some whatever or people are talking or leaving, you know, voting with their feet already. Uh, or they're disengaged, then it comes down to back to human connection. Have a chat. Yeah. Have have just a you know have a conversation with people, and hopefully, someone is still engaged enough 
to tell you how they actually feel and, and what is going on. I, I giggle because, I mean, I think every organisation I've worked in, it, it's one of the first uh, kind of strategies that an organisation rolls out uh, to try and get a picture of that. And yeah. um, and I think you're so right. It's, it's truly just about taking the time to have a conversation and sit down with your people and kind of really listen not listen to respond or listen to to you know say something but really just take it in absorb what they're saying take it away and give yourself a few days to really you know reminisce and sit with some of those thoughts and some of that feedback but i think you touch on a good point because you know a lot of this conversation we've had here today we're talking about like at the at the unit level at the coal face but as we know with many um volunteer organizations especially in australia and globally you know, there is some sort of staff paid um, kind mm -hmm. of structure that looks after a volunteer workforce. So my question to you is, what can organisations who are working with volunteers support leadership development? You know, what can we be doing to um, create programs or create spaces where our people and our leaders in our organisations can learn uh, and develop these skill sets. Like, have you seen anything done well through your research or anything globally where, again, like it's a, a paid workforce, you've got volunteers on the ground, but more from that kind of not leadership from a volunteer down to a, like at the coalface, but that more an organization trying to support good culture and leadership in an agency with their people. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Look, I think I think it's it's a great point, and again, absolutely, there are can be ways that you know leadership development and you know and and all of that can happen and and actually be effective. I think ultimately, for me, like volunteering, as we've you know started talking earlier today, is such a great context for developing leadership yeah. skills that I think one of the first things that you know the the people in in the paid roles and in the cor kind of corporate side need to do is to actually go down to the coalface and yep. experience it for their for themselves to understand it right mm. like there's some fascinating research that shows that you know even like people who used to be volunteers and then transition into paid roles like they completely forget it like mm. it's incredible they just it just their perspective shifts like you know, one minute they're in the volunteer shoes and they understand the struggles and like the, the you know, the, the daily kind of experiences and all of that. And then they become paid and they've shifted into paid workforce and immediately like it's almost like, you know, they forget. Like it's like it never <laughs> happened to them. Yeah. Like, I mean, I'm being a bit dramatic, but, yeah. you know, th there's literally research that's just like what happens? Like what happened? To the so, so I think going back to... Uh, you know, going back to that call face and going back to the units and actually um, working alongside, you know, if you're doing a leadership program or something like that, or, a, you know, a, a organizational intervention of any sort, I think you have to be really mindful that you bring both sides mm. to that, right? That it's volunteers and the paid or the corporate staff, however you want to call them, that are really working together and sitting at the same level at the same table and are listening to each other and understanding you know, um, the, you know, and listening and understanding each other's point of view and how they can, like, how can they tackle, you know, the, the whatever those pressing challenges are and develop, you know, the skills and the competencies that they require. I mean, there's great models, you know, as I said earlier, you can teach, you can learn leadership, you can teach leadership, you know, there's great many like research-based approaches in that. 
but ultimately, you know, for all of that to work, you have to bring those organizations a bit closer together. And unfortunately, yes, I've seen it as well, is that it's sort of, you know, oh, yeah, you know, our main headquarters in Perth yeah. is sort of, you know, it's like on the moon yeah. or Mars, <laughs> you know, it's on Mars and we're here in, you know, this, you know, like, and, and it, it, it's lost, you know, that, that connection uh, is, is completely lost. So, um, so, so, so I think, think, you know, think, so, you know, like I love running like leadership forums, which is a fancy name, uh, for a very simple, but hard conversation, uh, with one, ultimately one question, which is what does leadership mean for us in this organization? Yeah. And I would recommend anyone who is thinking about any leadership, anything to start with that, go around your organization and ask people, what does leadership mean here? Yeah. And you will be absolutely fascinated with the, with the answers that people, that people start, start, you know, tell what they tell you back. And that will tell you more about what leadership is like or what culture is like or what, you know, what we need to do here about than any survey or any, you know, anything ever will. Because yeah. just that one question can be so powerful in uncovering a lot of that implicit stuff that we don't pay enough attention to. I think it's also about agencies truly investing in it. Like I, I, I almost feel like there's a bit of sometimes a bit of a tokenistic approach to it. It's almost like quick, it's end of financial year. We have some extra money. Let's roll out some training out the door or something, but really kind of investing and having a strategic approach to how you build leadership, especially because like we said at the start, it starts at leadership. So if you don't have leadership, yeah. right, you can't do anything else. Like your agency is just going to fall over and fail at the end of the day. You will not be able to do your, you know, legislative requirements or what you're mandate mandated to do if you can't get leadership yeah. right. So it's almost kind of like you need to, you know, so many emergency services almost start with, oh, how do we train our stu- train our people, our volunteers to go out and do the job on the ground? It's kind of like, well, maybe we should actually start with how we're going to lead and manage these people to actually do the job yeah. in the first place. Because if you can't get that right, surely you can't get the rest of it moving. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and another thing I was going to add to that is, you know, also we need to think about structural barriers. Mm and kind of these embedded organizational barriers. Because, for example, I don't know, I mean, I, I think it depends on the particular organization. But, for example, you know, I know an example of organization, emergency management, where volunteering, volun- for volunteers, the career trajectory ends at the unit level. Mm. There's no pathway for them, even if they really, really want to, to, pro- you know, professionalize and become and go into like the, you know, the, the organized like EM and, yep. and continue like climbing the ladder. Like literally, if you're a volunteer, this is it, right? Yeah. And so that has to be changed. Uh, and, and, and it, and it's hard, but like when, when that gets changed, that also people start seeing those pathways, trajectories, and that can be then motivation. And we need more people who understand volunteering background yeah. in also the, you know, the higher levels of, of those, of those larger management organizations. We really need to, because the lived experience of being a volunteer, it, it, you can't replace that, right? Yeah. And speaking of lived experience, I want to kind of finish with our last question, which is what question we ask everyone around, Daria, how did you get involved in this space of working, one, in leadership, but two, you've done a lot of research and work in the emergency management leadership space, particularly with volunteers. What was your leadership journey or pathway to reach this point in your career and owning your own consulting firm? 
<laughs> Look, I'll give you a very brief version. I was always really interested in leadership from the point of view of why people do not see themselves as leaders. It was something that always came naturally to me. I never thought of leadership as tied to that hierarchical position. And it really surprised me that people sort of associate that unless, you know, I'm in this power position, only then I can call myself a leader. And so I kind of took a path of research to try to figure out why that might be the case. Uh, and then from there, um, the I used to volunteer with St. John uh, Ambulance here in WA, which is kind of sort of in that sort of overlap. And uh, then had an amazing opportunity to work with some, some great colleagues here in, in WA on the SES research. Um, and Blythe was part of that larger research group as well. So that was life-changing. I got to travel WA, go to these remote areas, sit down, have a yarn with people as a, a white European, um, you know, lady that everyone looked at me, what are you doing here? <laughs> that was incredible. Uh, and yeah, I've just saw the, amazing people um, that, that do this amazing community service and, and it really in, and, and how, how much how great volunteering context is for leadership development and thinking about leadership because it's completely different to what we usually assume. And yes, I continue that journey on doing all of those things. So you know supporting volunteers by participating in, in research and also some applied work around that, but also continuing my kind of passion and purpose of really changing leadership for better and uh, and educating people and bringing a lot more rigor and and you know into that fluffy field of leadership which is not actually that fluffy i'm not making any judgments <laughs> and we already know what you think Andrew. you already made it very clear earlier Thank i was you. about to say it's recorded on this podcast daria <laughs> Daria, thanks for today. I think you've really left us with uh, uh, a lot of answers, but also a lot of questions to keep pondering internally for ourselves uh, and for those out there who are leaders. But for those of us who want to learn a little bit more or do some more, um, you know, what are some resources or some spaces that people can go to to do that? Yeah, absolutely. So I run my own consultancy, The Leading Lab, that has um, a lot on offer some services for individuals and organizations. Uh, I like to partner with organizations in developing leadership along the lines of what we've discussed today. And you can absolutely come and follow me on LinkedIn, where I share a lot of resources on research on leadership and how you can improve your own leadership using those practical but research-based tips. We'll post a link to both of those on our website at memyselfdisaster.com. Daria Kraut, thanks for joining us on Me, Myself and Disaster. Thank you. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Josh. That's all we have time for on the show today. Join us again next time as we talk to more interesting Thanks guests from across the world Me, about their experiences disaster. during disasters. Subscribe we'll catch today you then. at memyselfdisaster.com.